These podcasts have been recorded on land where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been telling stories for generations. We want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community, and we pay our respects to Elders past and present. You can tell people you're happy till, till you're blue in the face and they're red in the face, you know, like you can tell people about feeling a little bit up or a bit down or a bit sad or all sorts of stuff but it's very difficult to tell people that you're feeling lonely because um, I guess sometimes people are given um, a hard time about it or, or they're made to feel like somehow it's their own fault. Welcome to Connected Us. I'm your host, Vanya Bromelow. So how about that 2020? It's a year none of us will forget in a hurry, that's for sure. The enforced distance between friends and family, the social isolation, the loneliness, but at the same time, the strange sense that the world is all on this bizarre journey together. So how does a year like the one we've had affect our social relationships and what might the lingering effects be going forward? Dr. Roger Patoni is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Wollongong. I spoke with him just as Melbourne was starting to see that second wave of cases crop up. The audio quality is a little different in this episode. Think of it as the Zoom effect. So we've all just been through, or some of us are still going through, this really unusual period during which we haven't been able to see many of the people we're close to. How do you think this has affected the way we think about these connections? It's a very good question. Uh, because it's a question about not not just kind of our immediate reaction to what's going on, but what we think about our reaction to what's going on, and and it gives us pause to reflect on our on our possible futures and, and the way we behave in the future. Uh, I I, I want to premise the answer by saying that uh, in Australia, there's been COVID's almost been like a blip. We had a sort of a surge, and then the surge seemed to come under control, and and the narrative feels like. You know, oh, we flatten the curve, or we fix the problem, and 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 for some, there's been a bit of a sense that it's just temporary. But <clears throat> very recently, we've had an upsurge of new cases. <clears throat> excuse me, in Victoria, the state of Victoria, and then suddenly, there's this almost irritation or, or or you know, new new resurgence of frustration about. Well, hang on, I thought we beat this thing, and now it's come back again. And the second wave stuff is also you know, happening in other countries as well, and. I, for one thing, it, it's going to it leads people to be much more reflective. You know, it, it, it's one thing to be shut down for a little while, locked in your house for a little while, and then you never have to do it again. But suddenly, people start to think about well, what if I do have to do it again and again. So, I guess my answer to the question is, it's given people time, I think, to reflect on uh, the quality of their friendships and their connections to other people, and what they are getting and can get out out of those. Uh, you know, friends and family, and, and as well. And also the quality of uh, their everyday life. Uh, and I say that latter part because, uh, you know, I've never seen so many people in green spaces before as when everyone was in shutdown. <laughs> During the day, the streets are a ghost town. And then suddenly uh, it hit after school time of five o'clock and every park, every greenway, every, um, you know, inch of space beside the, the river uh, is just filled with people just desperate to get out of the house and interact and, be, and do exercise. So I guess it's... It led us to reflect on how much we do value our connections with others and how much we want that connection, including physical connections. But it kind of remains to be seen how that's going to play out given potential going back into isolation or not. You know, is it just a blip? Will it will it not be a blip? I guess I think that it will lead to some kind of longer term change on, on, on at least a few levels of whereby people 
think a bit more about how they yeah, want, want to live their social life, what kind of stuff they want to do, and consider their options. The, the other facet, of, of course, to all this as well is video conferencing. Uh, people have learned that video conferencing is a thing and it can work quite well under certain circumstances and it's not bad. So I was saying to someone the other day that I just cannot escape my mum. <laughs> Every Sunday now, yeah. she does a big roundup of my extended family to say, uh, who's Zooming, who's Zooming, who's Zooming. She's determined to, to rope us all into a regular Sunday Zoom catch-up. And that's something new. <clears throat> and it works really quite well for her. Um, <clears throat> and for most of us, it works quite well as well. Like, you know, it's, um, it, it's like a new potential way of interacting. And we've got to figure out how to integrate that into the older ways of, of interacting. But, uh, but underneath it all... I do think that people are probably a little bit more reflective of the quality uh, of their relationships with others. I felt that initially, especially in the early days, there was a sort of more casual kind of friendliness than we're used to seeing because we were all having this really bizarre experience together. And then there was this, you know, sort of smiling and being in shared spaces and this sort of camaraderie almost. And then I felt like that fell away once the fear set in. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that in some ways shifts the, the, what we're talking about from somebody's individual feelings and perceptions as they sit on their own in their house to a sense of what the broader community, you know, sort of feels. Um, and it is a very interesting uh, space. Um, I mean, I think we had definitely some, some early evidence of people uh, bonding in new ways that they hadn't before. Like anecdotally, some of the stuff which came out of the, the media here and a bit of the research is um, people are suddenly getting to know their neighbours you know, like for the first time and introduce themselves and getting to know people on this street. But my experience, um, for example, on my street is um, it was a pretty friendly street already. And if anything, during COVID, it became less friendly because people were fearful for their kids getting sick. So kind of distance, distanced connections um, with neighbours for sure and distance connection with uh, strangers for sure. You know, and, and I can also recall that great feeling you get when you've been locked in, in, in your home all day and then you get out and you just meet somebody and it's like, hey, good day, you know, and you nod. And <clears throat> complete stranger, you just sort of almost want to connect with them because you're so, you know, reaching for, for human contact. But as you said, as, as time goes on, it seems to have given way to some sort of um, negative feelings. So some of the stuff that I am aware of about disaster research suggests that disasters bring out the best and the worst in us, you know, as humans. And I, I think you can see this being played out in, in, in many times and, and many occasions. Um, when we had the, the, the Australian bushfires back in, you know, a million years ago, meaning January, <laughs> uh, <laughs> during the bushfires, there was enormous camaraderie. You know, you have whole towns banding together and, and looking out for each other, you know, the, the, the volunteer firefighters doing their bit. You know, the community rises to the occasion. But I can also remember reading about in some abandoned communities, there were looters, you know, people riding their bikes and into empty houses and stealing stuff. And also there are instances of communities who were grief-stricken by, by destruction being very unfriendly to outsiders, particularly that outsider was a prime minister, <laughs> I have to say. Um, so it brings <laughs> sure, out sure. some of the best and the worst in us. And I think it's the same with COVID. Um, I have a student doing their honours and they're doing um, uh, interviews with people in urban and rural areas about their experiences of the bushfires and COVID. And what she's found so far is uh, that the bushfires seem to engender a greater sense of community and coming together, and, and COVID has not. In some ways, it makes sense, really, because it's inbuilt into COVID 
to stay away from other people when you can't bond. Yeah, so so there are different different dynamics going on there for sure. So for some of us, I'm thinking especially of people who live alone or people who are usually isolated, this has been a particularly difficult time. I'm thinking especially of people with disability perhaps and Befriend does a lot of work with people with disability. For some of these people, uh, their carers are a really integral part of their day-to-day social contacts and to have that taken away or reduced is a huge deal. But I'm wondering and this may be a bit Pollyanna-ish of me, but I'm wondering whether this shared experience might engender empathy for that experience of loneliness or social isolation because we've all been feeling a bit isolated, you know, and a bit lonely. What do you think? Am I being a Pollyanna? I know. No, I, I, I think <clears throat> that um, this whole experience <clears throat> would absolutely have the effect of destigmatizing loneliness. And, and loneliness is a stigmatized uh, emotion. Like, you know, there are emotions that you're allowed to talk about. You know, you can, you can tell people you're happy till, till you're blue in the face and they're red in the face. You know, like you can tell people about feeling a little bit up or a bit down or a bit sad or all sorts of stuff. But it's very difficult to tell people that you're feeling lonely because uh, I guess sometimes people are given um, a hard time about it or, or they're made to feel like somehow it's their own fault, you know, that they they are remiss, they need to get up and, and fix it themselves. Do you know what I mean? And mm. I think that what's really kind of, I guess, a useful side effect of all of this is, is it helps people realise that sometimes you can't fix stuff yourself. Sometimes external conditions force you into a situation where you have no contact with others and it feels yep. pretty bad, yep. like really awful. So I do think that... This does have the capacity to improve the empathy that people can have for those who are lonely. I also want to say uh, another thing from the research is that there's an important distinction between what we call social loneliness and emotional loneliness. And social loneliness is effectively the degree to which you have no actual contact with others. Um, Usually means physical contact, like meeting people. But it can also mean, I guess, virtual contact, like connecting on that level. But emotional loneliness is where you don't have the contact that you actually want and need with other people, the quality of contact. So it's like the gap between the desired quality of contact and the actual amount of quality of contact you have. It's an important yeah, distinction right. because um, the research suggesting that loneliness causes a lot of problems, as in physiological and mental health problems, and there is a lot of research now showing that's the case, um, is mostly pertaining to the emotional loneliness. That's, that's the more damaging form. And what it implies is it's not enough just to simply have uh, some kind of random contact with people and you're okay. You need to have meaningful, good contact with people to be okay. And and, and that puts us in an interesting space uh, with COVID because when you cut off from people and not able to go out and physically see them, then yes, you're more socially isolated. Um, But you've got all these IT options, you know, social media and video conferencing. Um, Now, if those uh, IT options can connect you to people that you already love and, and improve those relationships like myself with my uh, regular, regular Sunday mum catch-up and family catch-up, then, it, then then it's good. You know, it helps with your emotional loneliness. But if all it does is connect you to a bunch of randoms online that you don't know very well and effectively are strangers, then no, it's not going to help. Uh, does, does, does that make sense, the point? 
It does. It does. It absolutely does. And I'm thinking that it's a really important distinction for people working in the disability field because there's a lot of that in the disability sector, but it's not necessarily meaningful for that person. And I think sometimes the disability sector, well, certainly old models of disability support, would look at those incidental contacts and say, oh, well, that's enough. But what you're saying is that the research indicates that no, it's not. That's right. Yeah, M- meaningful contact is is important, and and of course, meaningful changes person by person. And one point to make is you mentioned earlier about people who live alone, like you know potentially people who have uh, a disability. I would also add though to that category, single persons and single parents are a particularly important uh, category. So um, there was a study done by Relationships Australia in 2018 and in that report they analysed data from a great big panel survey in Australia and looked at different types of persons in Australia and their reported isolation and loneliness and what was really interesting is that whilst they found that um, say you know certain groups of younger and older people reported feeling more lonely uh, one of the groups of people who reported you know much higher much much higher levels of loneliness than any others was single parents yeah, and, and, and yeah, it's right. kind of not hard to think to realise why, right? Because single parents in general are, are cut off from a lot of networks and contacts with others by, by warrant of not having the time necessarily to go out and do stuff because they're spending all their time looking after kids on their own. Um, and, they, and also they just yep. don't have yep. a partner in the house who can provide them with meaningful contact that they might like, you know? So COVID, I think, has probably had a very different and interesting impact on single parents and single people who live alone versus couples. And anecdotally, uh, I have I know plenty of couples who have told me they quite enjoyed the COVID time. And that was because they got to bunker down with their partner who they essentially like and spend some nice quality time at home with them, you know, <laughs> feeling, feeling like the pressure of, of fast-paced um, late modern life is toned right down and they can actually yeah. kind of relax and spend the good quality time with their partner they weren't expecting to get until I retired. <laughs> <laughs> like a it's like a mini retirement, exactly right. You know, and, 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 and some of them are sitting there wishing, God, I almost wish yeah. we'd go on for longer because it was just a kind of a pleasant, nice experience for them. And, and, I'm just, I'm just, and I've known several people who have who've commented on this. However, everyone I know, the much fewer number of people who I know who are single, you know, who live, who live, on, who live on their own or, or, you know, they're a single parent, of which I'm one, by the way. Uh, couldn't stand COVID and couldn't wait for it to be over, of which I'm one. You know, I just got so sick of being at home and I just desperately wanted to get out of the house and meet people because uh, it's not great to spend an enormous amount of your time on your own in your, in your home alone sort of thing. For sure, for sure. And all of my single friends were finding it particularly tough, like not fun, not fun at all. Yeah. And the second point I wanted to make goes back to what you said um, earlier about people who have disabilities and, 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 t- and tricks and techniques and strategies to, to help um, and, and not just people who have disabilities, but also people in aged care facilities um, who could have been pretty heavily impacted by, by COVID as well. And just to go to a little bit of the, the literature on interventions, um, <clears throat> something that's important to keep in mind is that some of the better interventions, as from what I've been able to work out through looking at, at the literature, uh, are oriented towards bringing people physically together as much as possible and giving them a project to do together, which is meaningful and which they can direct themselves and shape themselves and get on board with themselves in a, in a longer term sense. This is a really useful approach because 
um, for, for several reasons. Um, one, uh, they, they meet other people, not, not just one, one person, as happens with befriending schemes. And, and, and um, the research, in, to, from what I can see, does not really support befriending schemes as much. Because the yep. one-on-one befriending schemes, whilst they're very well-intentioned and lovely people <clears throat> put their volunteer time into them, are just a kind of a blip in an ocean, you know. Uh, I, I have a friend involved in one and she says that the guy she goes to see, an older man, says, you're the first person I've talked to a week and he is um, very, very deeply lonely and unhappy. And she feels so sorry, but and, and she, you know, she, but she gives as much time as she can and he doesn't see anyone else. It, so, so that befriending scheme is really problematic in terms of really dealing with his long-term loneliness. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, on and my friend's lovely. She really tries as hard as she possibly can. Um, but but it's just it's just it's just the the the, the intervention doesn't seem to be working quite the way we would hope. Whereas uh, interventions where you bring together a group of people who are lonely, particularly if they have shared experience, you know, some shared identity, shared experience, so they can relate to each other on some level. If you can bring them together and get them to interact with each other and give them a project to work on, which means that they'll start to self-organize to to work on that project, uh, not just once, but multiple times. Yeah, potentially would help if they have difficulty self-organizing, you know. Which is so interesting because that's exactly the model that Befriend uses in what they call their social network. So they bring people together, all different stripes, whatever, who have a common shared interest, and that's the hub of the social activity. Yes, and that sounds fantastic. And I was just going to say that the benefits are, yes, you, you bring a whole lot of people together, um, so you help multiple people at once. You get them to, to connect with each other and then they start to become self-supporting of each other um, and they start to develop meaningful connections because they can start to share their experiences with each other. They come together around the project and that's very, very helpful because it gives them something to do, something to think about, something to work together to problem solve and something to be interested in, you know. Um, and also the other factor that I've, I've read about is um, if these things, particularly if they can be combined with some kind of basic cognitive training, meaning, you know, you, you can have people on hand who can help with get, getting people to, to process um, difficult cognitive issues or unhelpful uh, cognitive thinking processes and just and, and, and work at them, rework at them in a different way. That can be quite helpful as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like someone might, might be there going, oh, I really like to get out and do stuff and interact, but it's no use. What's the use? No one wants to be friends with me or, or it's too hard. I'm too tired all the time. And, and there's aspects of depression involved. So some degree of some, of some cognitive retraining can be, can be helpful to sort of break that cycle, uh, the, the project-based activity stuff as well. So we've touched on the digital communication thing and many of us have leaned on these technologies during this weird period with good effect, as you've pointed out with your mum or if there's an existing social connection there. But are, are there things that we get from face-to-face interactions that we can't really replicate by digital means? Absolutely, yes. I would never advocate um, that, uh, that digital is sufficient to replace physical, you know, uh, not unless we live in some matrix world where, where, you know, like we're directly plugged into the system, whatever. Um, like, you know, fantasy land. Um, I absolutely <laughs> believe that physical connection is important for, for, for several reasons. Uh, first up, you know, humans like to have physical, actual physical contact, you know, like, like hugs, touch, holding hands, you know, kisses, uh, sex, 
these are all wonderful things and and you know and 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 people miss it if they don't have it then there's also the physical side of, of human interaction on a, on a broader public level. Um, sports, like playing an actual game of sports where you're like soccer, where you're interacting and but in, you know, in a great, nice way, all that kind of stuff. Then it, leaving aside the touch, even just those, those basic touch elements, there's a whole you know, mass of, of physical cues that are important in real life that you just don't get. Um, you definitely don't get them in, say, social media text-based contact. And even in a Zoom face-to-face yeah, right. uh, conversation, you don't get them either. Like um, the, the, the cues of, of uh, you know, smell, additional sounds, the cues of, of what's going right on in the room or the space around you. Um, you know what I mean? Like, like for example, uh, we've been talking right now for a while and um, a plane has gone overhead three times. Um, have you have you heard it or noticed it by any chance? No, no. See, if you're in the room with me right now, you would have noticed that, and I would have said, you know, this is what life is like in Marrickville, a life under the planes. And I would have told you the story of, of the Marrickville pause, which is where everyone stops what they're doing when the plane goes overhead and then resumes at a second. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny as well, and I'm just thinking about this now, is that during this conversation with you on Zoom, you know, we can see each other and that's great because we've got visual cues, facial expressions and whatnot. But what I don't have any indication of is the way that you're sitting or what you're doing with your hands or even what you're doing with your feet and all of that stuff. And apparently I need that information as well to make me feel more Absolutely. And also... If we were meeting in, say, a cafe to have this conversation, you'd see the type of coffee I get. You'd see what I've ordered to eat. The experience of the interaction would have smell, you know, like um, I can remember the scent of the tea or, you know, things along those lines. And I guess just finally, the physical allows for crowds and crowd interaction and, and, and big, large, wide um, space. So, like, you know what I mean? That, or perhaps a, a way to think about it is, would you rather look through um, a video screen at Bondi Beach or would you rather be on Bondi Beach? And I think most people <laughs> would go for the latter. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I often say to my kids, imagine, just imagine if this had happened, like the virus, 30 or 40 years ago. There'd be no text and no email, no Zoom, no Skype. And the sense of isolation would be so much more acute. And so obviously we're all grateful these digital conduits are there, but it's just not the same. Absolutely. So do you think there might be any lasting social impacts from the pandemic? Let's imagine, just for argument's sake, that there's a vaccine by the year's end. Do you wonder about a lingering social or emotional impact upon us or maybe especially upon kids? Yes, I, I think that there will be some impact. I, I mean, I think it's uh, very unlikely that we'll just go back to how we were before and, and the reasons for that are, um, this period will have left uh, an impression on a whole generation of people of something really quite different, particularly the kids. Like every, every kid in, in um, 10 years, 20, 30 years' time will remember that year they had to be at home learning from, from home on a computer, you know. They'll either remember it uh-huh. because it was a one-off but it, but it stuck in their memory or they'll remember it because it was the beginning of a total change. But either way, it'll be there. It'll be important for them. Um, uh-huh. And it's important for the rest of us uh, as well, like as a, as a moment when a number of things have changed. I think it will lead to greater recognition of, of loneliness 
and more discussion around it and potentially people will realize that it's around a lot more than they thought and, and considering the relationships. It'll lead to more anxiety because uh, not, not just the, from the, the, the health implications, but also the economic fallout. But, you know, the, the recession effects are still yet to come properly, I, I think, mostly around the world. And they'll be filtering through for the next few years and that, won't be, that will not be good. And, and there's a whole lot of anxiety that goes along with that. We'll also in the future now yeah. go, yeah. I'm now aware of what a pandemic can do and, and, and another one could come. And we don't know when and that sort of stuff, you know. So, so there'll be a, a, slight, a slightly heightened level of anxiety around that. But there's also potential for hope and optimism in that we've seen some really poor examples of how to manage the pandemic in various countries, not going to name names, <laughs> but we've also seen some yeah. very good examples of how to manage it. And I think we've seen some remarkable adaptation and ingenuity from, from, from humans. Like if you compare this one to say the Spanish flu, the containment is out of this world. Like, you know, we, we've, we've um, done an amazing job of really, really fast shutting it down. And we've been able to keep going because of this incredible um, technological world we've built, you know, continue to, do, to have yep. businesses yep. run and go to school because of the digital world that we've enabled, you know. And, and that ha- I, I think you should, one, should pause and reflect on that and go, geez, like, we're not, we're, you know, we're not that dumb. <laughs> It's pretty impressive, really, if you think about it. So, so there is definitely some room for some optimism and, and, and hope that we can find ways through these, these issues, yeah. Dr. Roger Petulny talking with me about how the pandemic has affected our social worlds. I'm Vanya Bromelow and you've been listening to the Connected Us podcast. You can find the rest of the series at the Befriend website, that's befriend.org.au, or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and see you next time.